The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Good morning. I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians, if you would, 2 Corinthians. We're going to be looking at this epistle, this letter of the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. And it's one I think that we can... uh, we can understand and appreciate uh, the Apostle Paul. This is the most transparent, heart-revealing letter that he wrote. It's really the ultimate pastoral epistle because Paul is being very transparent about what he has gone through, what he is going through, and his heart and love for these people that at times had um, lost trust in him and treated him as though they were very suspicious. And so this last the second uh, epistle to the Corinthians, Paul is incredibly transparent and he talks about his ministry and uh, why God had given him the authority of an apostle, which was an offense to many people. And so what I want to do is start by just reading the first 11 verses of the first chapter, Second Corinthians chapter 1. This is how Paul begins the letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort or encouragement, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which our we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings that we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, you also are sharers of our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of the affliction, the tribulation, the trouble, which, we, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that, or in order that, we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. You also joining and helping us through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. The passage reminds me, of the fact that there's a pastor in town, uh, Jonathan G. Chip G is, uh, if nothing happens, if God doesn't do something, he's going to die in the near future. He has pancreatic cancer. They thought they could do surgery, but then when they took a closer look, they discovered there was no way that it could be done. And so I want to pray for him this morning. And when I read this, uh, this description of Paul's of the trial that he went through, that where he even despaired of life, that he didn't think he would ever get through this. Uh, I'm sure that this is exactly what Chip is going through today. And so I want to pray for him and that uh, group of believers here in Brentwood. 
Our Father, we bow our hearts before you now. We thank you for this message of Paul. We thank you for his transparency. We thank you, Father, that in your grace you took him through things that were so difficult so that he could teach us through your word exactly what your purpose is in allowing believers to go through affliction, to go through tribulation, to go through troubles. We know, Father, that we can pray today with great confidence that you can heal the sick and raise the dead, that you are able to move in a person's heart. You're able to do the impossible. And so we come to you with confidence in you. But we also know, Father, that we can only ask in the name of Jesus and the power of the Spirit, trusting you and trusting your heart towards your own. So I ask you for Chip today that you would touch his body. You'd raise him from this, what could be a deathbed. I just pray that you would heal him and raise him up and give him strength. And I pray that you would speak to our hearts today as we look at the word, that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to the very thing that you want us to see in our individual lives and corporately. So we pray for your manifest presence among us today. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a fascinating letter, and like I say, it's one of the reasons is is because Paul is so transparent in this book as we go through it. Two events prompted the letter, and it kind of helps us, uh, helps us understand why he bears his soul to them in such a profound way. Uh, he had sent Titus, who was a part of his team, to Corinth because Paul had to write them a very severe letter that confronted them about their sin. It was a letter of reproof. Have you ever been reproved? You have ever any, anybody in the body of Christ who uh, reproved you and told you that the way you were going was wrong and you needed to turn from it? It's really hard for us to take reproof. It's probably what's harder is for most of us to ever allow God to use us to reprove others because we all are so aware of our own weaknesses that why are we going to bother about somebody else's problems and troubles and if they're going off the path? But the Apostle Paul loved these people, and so he sent this letter to them to tell them the truth about where they were veering from the faith, that is, from the clear teachings of the New Testament, the commandments of Christ of how they were to live and how they were to serve him. And so that message hit hard. It really hit home and so he sent Titus to see how they were doing and what their attitude towards him was. And, and so he, he comes back from this visit, and we have recorded in chapter 7 what he discovered was going on at this church. And one of the wonderful things was that they, the Spirit of God had really spoken to their hearts, and they received the message with gladness, and their attitude changed, the great majority of them. The second thing that precipitated this letter was some other news that came to him about the same time just after Titus had come back, and that is that there were people there that were very vocal in their criticism of the Apostle Paul. Now, the apostles, as you know, Jesus had 12 apostles with him. One of them fell, and there were 11 left. And then there are other men in the New Testament that are called apostles, primarily the Apostle Paul. Paul was not a follower of Jesus during his life, the days of his flesh, as the Bible says. He was an enemy of Christ, and he was on his way to do damage to the followers of Christ when Christ met him on the road. Remember that? 
And it says that he fell to the ground. There was a great light. He encounters Christ. And Christ says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so he, and that was his name before his conversion. He was known as Saul. And so when, when this voice came to him, the, the, he, what he's, how he responded was the same way you and I would respond is, well, who are you, Lord? <laughs> now, he assumed he was Lord because it was a supernatural event. And he's laying on the ground and he's blinded. And so when Jesus says to him, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you? And Jesus identifies himself. Now stop and think about this, that the pre-apostle, before he became an apostle, this enemy of Christ, this is why he says he was the least of all the saints because he had been an enemy of Christ. And uh, he had not been, he had never persecuted Christ personally. Perhaps he was in the crowd that was saying crucify him because he believed he was a false messiah. But during the life of Jesus, there was, we never see of any kind of encounter between the two, and yet Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And of course, how, the way that he was persecuting Jesus was he was persecuting his people. And this is one of the primary teachings of the New Testament, that when we come to faith in Christ, we are joined to Christ in an unusual way. We become one with him. So that Jesus said, to persecute my people is to persecute me. That was the implication. And so he puts us in local communities of believers, and he commands us to love each other. He commands us to love each other the way he has loved us. And as you know, that was to the extent of him giving his own life for us. And yet he calls us to love each other in this way, that we would lay down our lives for each other. And uh, if we persecute fellow Christians, perhaps it is we wouldn't consider it persecution, but if we refuse to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, then what we are doing is we are refusing to obey the command of Christ. Now, I, there are people that are difficult to love. I would have them stand, uh, but I don't want to embarrass anybody. I'm already standing. But this is what he's called us to, is to love each other enough to tell the truth to one another. This is Ephesians chapter 4, when he talks about how we're to treat each other, one of the primary things he says is, speak truth to one another because we are members of one another. And in that context, the truth is the gospel. We're to speak the gospel to each other and the implications of the gospel. Since Christ died for you, what should your priorities be? (laughs) So we're to speak truth. And sometimes that's hard to take. I forget the movie or the actor, but you remember the line, you can't take the truth. And sometimes it's true, isn't it? Is I'm just hoping you didn't notice what a jerk I am. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like we, we just, I, I had a conversation the other day. I've had two occasions over the years in preaching in different situations, different settings, where I felt like it was a total flop, where I had just really blown it. I I, I didn't really think through the, the, the context in which I was going to be speaking. And, uh, and so I felt like I just, in both times really, I just felt like I went on and on and on. And you know how I am. I can really go on and on and on and on. And over a decade after those events, and this just happened the other day, uh, the time I preached about 20 years ago, and I can remember feeling a total failure. 
that it was just a total fail. And um, I was talking to a friend of mine, and he, it was his church I was preaching at for a special meeting, and he starts telling me how that, he said, I can still remember when you preached Revelation 1 and how it impacted my life. I could hardly, he said, it just left me weak thinking about the way you portrayed Christ. Well, what he didn't know is I thought that was a total failure. In fact, I told him, I said, that's amazing that you would say that because that's one of those times when I wish I could take it back and redo it. Now, that's all to say, not that I'm a lot better than I think. It's, It's to say that it's the Spirit of God who works through us. And there are times where we're afraid to tell each other the truth when we really need to hear the truth. The best things that have ever happened to me is when fellow believers have told me the truth that I didn't, I wasn't aware of, and I, I really didn't want to know it. But amazingly, the Spirit can take those words and those occasions to speak His truth into our lives, exactly what we need to hear. Because all of us have been called to be servants, ministers in the body of Christ, and He has gifted each one. And he has assigned each one to be a part of this disciple-making process that he's called us to. But it's, it really amazes me how many Christians think, don't even think in those terms. They don't even think in the terms of, God's called me to the ministry. You think that's for people who stand up before crowds like this and preach the Bible. No, God's called all of us to ministry. In fact, the primary purpose of a pastor, we're told, is to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. Because we're all called to ministry. And um, sometimes uh, doing the work of ministry, as Paul experienced here, uh, brings pain to our life. You know, we're so afraid to speak because we're afraid that, are afraid that people will not like what they hear or not like the way we say it, approach it. And so we just draw back. And what God wants us to do is to be truthful. And as Ryan said, we're not at war with each other. We are on the battlefield together. We're fellow soldiers as we take the gospel forward. The only reason it's referred to as a war is there's opposition to the gospel. There are, there are two billion people in the world today that can't hear the gospel because there's no gospel witness allowed where they live. And yet we live in a context where we are free to talk about the gospel. Now, it's not that everybody that you talk to about it is going to like it, or you, but we have this freedom. Now, in this book, uh, Paul is writing in response to this good news and the bad news. The good news that they still love him, and they appreciate the fact that he spoke clearly and straightforwardly to them, and it caused them to repent of their attitude. And so, but the other part of it is he heard some bad news that there was, there was a stronger contingency of enemies against Paul who tried to undermine his authority to be able to speak into their lives as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so he writes this letter, and there are three main purposes to it. He wants to express his great relief and delight that they actually responded in a positive way. It's always wonderful when you're able to minister to somebody and they tell you, how helpful that was. That's, that's great. Uh, but it doesn't always happen. And in this case, 
he got good news, and so he wants to respond to that. The second reason is he wants to encourage them to, to uh, complete the collection that they promised. This, remember, this letter contains Paul's admonition to them to fulfill the promise they made to give to the suffering uh, believers, Jewish believers in Judea, who were going through a very difficult time. And so he's taken a collection for that, and he wanted them to carry through. This was really important to Paul, and the reason was he wanted the Jewish believers— Remember, the early church began with Jews. There were only Jewish believers in the church at first in Jerusalem. And so when the Gentiles began, you know, Gentiles were the rest of us who are not Jews. When the Gentiles became, began to follow Christ, they doubted whether they were truly followers of the true Messiah because they weren't Jewish. And so they wanted them to become Jewish in their lifestyle instead of following Christ as Gentiles. And so he wants the Jews to receive this gift from a Gentile church so they would testify to the fact that we are one. The third reason he writes is to prepare them for his coming. And so this is why you've heard this phrase before, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. That's where this, that phrase comes from is this book in chapter 13. And what Paul is saying to them, not examine yourself to see if you're really a Christian, It's examine yourself to see if you are really walking in line with the revelation that Christ has given us through the apostles. Are we really living according to the commandments of Christ? Now, here's the deal. Jesus has given us commandments, and he has proven how much he loved us. Revelation 1 says he loves us, and he gave himself for us. He gave his life for us. So we have no doubts about his commandments. This is the eternal son of God, and he gives us commandments. And we have no doubts that those are for our best. I discovered, I've told you this before, and I keep bragging about it, I know, but I discovered that loving my wife the way Christ loved the church is really a beneficial commandment for husbands. If you want your life to improve, men, husbands, then start loving your wife the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And you'll discover It's a great improvement. And the reason that I know that commandment is good is because of who it came from. It came from Jesus Christ through the Apostle Paul, Ephesians chapter 5. And so what he is telling them to do is to examine yourself. Are you following Christ? Are you really obeying his commandments? And the reason he wants them to do this is to examine themselves and to, and to prepare their hearts. When he comes, he's going to confront sin in their lives. And nobody likes that until you've gone through it and you've repented and you've been set free. You've experienced liberty. You've been liberated. Sometimes Christians for years walk, uh, like Paul says in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 3, he says to the Corinthians, Some of you continue to live according to the flesh. You're still fleshly in your lifestyle. Even though you've come to faith in Christ, you're still living as though you were outside of Christ. And the best thing for a person like that is to hear the truth, the implications of the gospel. You know, like some people come to faith in Christ and because, let's say, uh, racism. Somebody can have, be a, have a real racist streak in their character. So they come to Christ, but they, they continue to manifest this racist attitude. Well, that's in direct disobedience to the Word of God. 
Second Corinthians chapter five says you're supposed to relate to everybody on the face of the earth, regardless of who they are, as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, and you're to appeal to them to be reconciled to God. See, that's our assignment. That's the commandment of Christ. And so he's telling them, examine yourselves and be prepared when he comes. He loves them, and so he's going to tell them the truth. In essence, his one overriding aim is this. He wants to pave the way for his planned visit to them. He doesn't want them to be, he, he doesn't want them to be embarrassed. He wants them to be helped. You know how we get sometimes we really want to tell somebody off. There used to be a, a teacher who uh, claimed it was a real a popular uh, teacher of a very large group, and he's, he used to say that the gift of prophecy is to tell people off and to tell them what they don't want to hear, confront them to the face and tell them they're dead wrong. In other words, act like you're their enemy. Uh, that's not prophecy. And I can tell you how we know that is all you do is to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and read what prophecy produces. What did it produce in the early church when a person prophesied? It produced comfort. It produced um, encouragement and consolation. When you speak for God, because you have the Holy Spirit, and therefore he comes, sometimes moves your heart to speak to a brother or sister in Christ, when that happens and you obey, and you actually allow God to use you to speak into people's lives, I'm not talking about giving revelation. I'm talking about some things are so clear. You know, one of the great things about being in a local church is if we're all telling each other the truth, you might have a a personal characteristic that offends everybody, but nobody's ever told you. But if you're a part of a local church and 10 people, 15 people, 20 people say, brother, I really love you, but you know, you really have a bad habit in the way that you treat people. If you hear that 20, 30 times, you might actually say, you know, I might have a problem. I might need to be corrected. That's one of the benefits. And so Paul, he wants them to be prepared so that when he comes, they're not going to be offended, put off, but rather they're going to receive his message and let it produce its good work in their life. Now, uh, this is the name of the series, by the way, I forgot. Uh, Gospel Power and Human Weakness. I love that expression. I stole that from somebody and I don't know who. Uh, Gospel Power and Human Weakness. That's, that's a picture of clay, a clay vessel. G, Paul says that we, we possess this glory, the glory of the gospel in clay vessels. We're just clay vessels. We're just humans. We're not super saints. Nobody has a super gift. We're just fellow believers, and yet he is, he is, God has chosen to display his glory in clay vessels like us. Weak people. And then uh, the theological themes I want you to be aware of that we're going to see in this book. And the only reason I say that, not to make you a theologian, but this is one of the things where your Bible needs to become a useful tool in your hands. It really does. It needs, you need to know where to go to show people what the Word of God says about their lives, about their situation, about the challenges in their life right now. And so in this book, uh, in this letter, uh, Paul, first of all, talks about uh, suffering as a new covenant minister. Now, you're thinking, oh, what is that? That's like pastors and teachers and evangelists. No, that's every believer. We are ministers of the new covenant. And we'll see that in this book. 
that we all are ministers of the new covenant. And so he's going to tell us that suffering is a part of being a new covenant minister. I hate to give you that news, but suffering is a part of it. Yeah, you are a minister and that means you're going to suffer. John Piper preached a message and the title was, um, if you want to enjoy life, stay away from Jesus. And there's a guy that wrote a song based on that, Matt Papa, uh, Stay Away From Jesus. And he begins a song, you'll never hear this song on Christian radio, <laughs> Stay Away From Jesus. And all he's, it's just, it's sarcasm. In other words, if you think that uh, you come to Christ and, and life is just a rose garden, you're going to be greatly disappointed. Because the Christian life is so much better than that. It can be difficult and trying. Uh, it can be filled with affliction and tribulation. The word that he uses here about affliction is the word for tribulation that's used of the great tribulation. The Bible says that throughout the church age, Christians are going to experience tribulation. But then at the very end, there's going to be this great increase, what we call the great tribulation, what the Bible calls the great tribulation. When the final judgment, phase of judgment comes on this earth. So in this first chapter, what we're going to see this morning is that suffering is a part of new covenant ministry. And then secondly, biblical, the biblical pattern of Christian discipline. How are, we, how are we to carry out what we typically call church discipline? And he's going to talk about this in this book because they had to do this. There was a man in the church that was a part of the flock. He was known as a believer, and he was living in continual sin. He was living with one of his father's wives. And even the Gentiles thought that was horrible, the unbelievers. And so they had to discipline him. And now Paul is writing to tell him, now you have to forgive him because he's repented. That's the wonderful thing about the church, is you'll be told the truth, but then when there's repentance, there is forgiveness. Because we're a fellowship of the forgiven, right? That's who we are. We've been forgiven. We're not sinless, but we are forgiven. And then the, the third thing is the role of a minister of the new covenant, what we are supposed to be doing. And then the relationship between old and new covenants. What is the difference? Do you even know what the old covenant is and the new covenant is? The old covenant is the Mosaic covenant, and the new covenant is the covenant established by Christ based upon his death, burial, and resurrection, which we are living in now. And by the way, this is why, I don't want to offend anybody, I'm sure I'm going to, but this is why we don't keep Sabbath and we don't pay tithe. We think you should start at 11%. And you're giving. <laughs> but the reason we don't, we're not under the Mosaic law because we're under the new covenant. Now, I got to tell you, the expectations of Jesus and the commands of Jesus are far greater than you can imagine. And then the uh, theology of death and resurrection. Uh, if you want to help somebody as they're fearing death, this is a great place to go because this book talks about what happens to a believer when they die. To be absent, Paul says in this book, chapter 4, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So there's no interim experience. We go from this life, when we die, we immediately, as believers, enter into the presence of Jesus Christ, and that's promised to us. And then the nature of reconciliation. What does it mean to be reconciled to God, and why are we ambassadors of Christ and we're telling people, be reconciled to God. And then finally, the principles and practice of gospel giving. This is the principles of giving found here in chapter 8 and 9. Now, the outline of the book is quite simple. 
In the first two chapters, those are chapters right there. The first two chapters from all of chapter one and the first half of chapter two, you have, he explains his actions. Now, the reason this is significant is he's been attacked. And so he wants to explain the reason he did what he did and said what he said. And then in the last part of chapter two through chapter seven, he explains his ministry. Why does he serve the way he does? Why is he different than old covenant ministry? Why is the ministry of these apostles, the, the ones who were sent by Christ with the gospel, what they are? And then in chapters 8 and 9, he, talks, he calls them to give, that is to carry out this promise that they had made to give to these needy saints in Judea. And then finally, in chapter 10 through 13, we have the apostolic authority explained. Why does Paul have all this authority? Because he's an apostle. And apostles are those sent under authority. The word uh, apostello, from which the word uh, apostle comes, just means to be sent with authority, with a message. And so the apostles saw themselves as that. And if you want to look into that a little bit, you could read the Upper Room Discourse, chapter, John chapter 13 through 17, and you can see Jesus on the night that he's arrested, he's telling his apostles that he's sending them into the world. In chapter 20, he says, just as the Father sent me, I am sending you. And you're to go and take this message. And of course, that comes down to, to all of us as well. Now, what we're going to look at today, this is all just an introduction, is we're going to look at tribulations, encouragement, and liberation. The reason this message to me is so important is it had such great impact on my life. Uh, I can remember when I first heard this preached, and it got, it got through to me. I probably had heard it preached before, but I can remember when the first time it really penetrated my heart. And I want it to penetrate your heart. And so uh, what we're going to look at is in this passage is just, this is a typical letter. Paul wrote letters like that was typical of his day. And so he always begins, you don't do this when you write a letter. Oh, you, I bet you none of you write letters, huh? Does anybody here write letters anymore? Yeah, there's a few of us uh, still write letters. And so you don't, you don't, uh, you name the recipient, but you don't name yourself at the beginning of the letter, do you? You wait until the very end, and then you sign it. But in the first century, the way that letters were written, you have these three things. The writer, he would describe himself, identify himself, and then he would, then he would mention the recipients, and he would usually have something good to say about them, and then finally the greeting. And so that's what you have. Notice in the first three verses of Second Corinthians 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So he identifies himself. He is Paul, the apostle of Christ Jesus. He's the apostle of Christ Jesus. He's been sent by Christ. And so he speaks with authority to the people of God. And then he tells, he tells who the recipients are, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. That's just, that'd be like saying, I'm writing to the church in Brentwood and all the believers in Contra Costa County. And so he's identifying who they are, and he calls them the church that is at Corinth. Now, the Bible says we're the church that is in Jesus Christ, but we're also the church that is in Knightson. You see? Because this is where we are geographically. We are in a place, time, space. And we are here for a purpose. But we are, the, we are part of the church of Jesus Christ. The church is those, are those people who have been called by Christ to become a part of this body. 
And so at some moment in life, every believer here, at some moment in life, your ears were open to the gospel call of Christ and you came to Christ. Salvation is in Christ. In order to have salvation, you have to have Christ. 1 John 5, 11 and 12 tells us that. In order to have eternal life, you have to have Christ because eternal life is in Christ. So if you receive Christ, you receive eternal life. There's no salvation outside of Christ. And salvation has to do with making us whole and bringing us into this relationship with God who created us to worship him, to be worshipers, to be members of the family of God. And then finally, the the greeting that he gives them. Notice in in, uh, in verse two, grace to you and peace. Grace and peace are two of the results of being, coming into a relationship with Christ. When you put faith in Christ, you begin to experience peace and grace. Grace means that God is giving you himself even though you have done nothing to deserve it. And peace is that you now are at peace with God and you experience the peace of God in your heart from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he begins to extol God. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Mercy is what we need when we are suffering because we made some dumb decision. Have you ever done that? You ever made a bad decision? You look back and I say, wow, this was a bad move. I should have never done this. Now I'm experiencing this misery that I'm in because of it. Well, mercy is when you treat people based upon what they need rather than what they deserve. And so God is the God of all mercy. Uh, James calls him this. This is a title that James gives to God. And when you're asking him for something that you need, even though you don't deserve it, he said, he is the God who gives to all men liberally without reproof. In other words, he doesn't say, you know, I'll be glad when you learn the lesson like you do with your kids, you know, after they've done the same thing 52 times and you go, you know, I've told you a hundred times. And the kid says, no, you haven't. You told me 52 times. God doesn't do that. Uh, He gives us what we need based upon his love for us. And so he's the God of mercy. He gives us mercy. And this is important in this book because that's going to be one of the themes that runs throughout the book is God's mercy. Now, where I want us to spend our time, our next few minutes, is in, in verses 3 through 11. And there's two emphases here. And the emphases to my grammatical uh, critic is the plural form of emphasis. I have to make that clear because I appreciate the fact that there is a person in this church who always corrects my grammar. <laughs> Two emphases. The first is God comforts us in our tribulations. God comforts us in our tribulations. Tribulations is bad. Tribulation is trouble, it's trials, it's pain, it's hardship. And Paul's going to talk about a tribulation he went through that he despaired of life. He didn't think he could live through it. And so he's going to talk about, in verses 3 through 7, he talks about how God comforted him in all of his afflictions. The word comfort is important. It's the word, uh, those are the two Greek words, parakaleo and paraklesis. But you've heard of the paraclete, right? A paraclete. Uh, That's when Jesus said in John 15... When he said, I will ask the Father, actually John 14, verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, another uh, parakletos, another paraclete, that he may be with you forever. Uh, 
it's a word, it's a picture word. And the picture is this. You're walking down a path and you're all alone. And all of a sudden somebody falls in alongside of you to encourage you on this path. It, it's, it, that's literally what it means. You can hear it in the word. Para, alongside, like a parallel. Kletos, to call. Someone called alongside you to walk with you, to encourage you, to help you. I have a man that I've been meeting with lately who's going through a really difficult time in life, facing a huge challenge, and, and he so wants to talk to anybody who's gone through this and has come out the other side so that they can tell him what it's going to be like. And the stuff that he's facing right now is not going to kill him. You're going to be okay. See, that's a parakletos. It's also the word that's used of lawyer. A lawyer is supposed to be, they're not always this, but they're supposed to be, a person who comes alongside of you and represents you and encourages you and lets you know it's okay. They use a lot of this language you're not going to understand, but I can assure you it's going to be okay. We're going to go through this. So the Spirit is our parakletos, and you've heard this preached before. Jesus said, I'm going to give you another comforter, and it's the, the word there means another of the same kind. He's going to be just like me. Because they had been with Jesus for three and a half years, and now he says, I'm going to leave you, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to send you a comforter, a parakletos, and he's going to walk alongside you and be with you. This is a person who, instead of confronting you in a situation, he feels like what you need is someone to come alongside of you and to say, I know what you're going through, and I, and I want to encourage you as you go through this. And so the, the, the idea of this, the paraclete, the parakletos, is that he's a person, the Spirit is a person who is with you, and he'll never leave you. That's what he says, that he may be with you forever. I was brought up in a, in a church setting where we were taught that you didn't have the Holy Spirit until you got a second blessing, and then the Spirit came to live in you, but you could lose him, he could leave you. And then I found out from the Bible that it says that this is a mark of the believer, you have the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 10 you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If it's true that the Spirit dwells in you, and if you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. Because this is what Christ does for you when he saves you. He gives you the Spirit. So you have the Spirit, and he's going to be with you forever, and he is a wonderful comforter. Now, it's translated comfort here. It's, it t- notice 10 times in this section, this word uh, parakletos or, or paraklesis, or the, the, both the noun and the verb are used, encouragement, or it's translated comfort, but it's the word that means encouragement. It is comfort. It's to comfort somebody with encouragement. Something interesting in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, this is what I want you to do as believers in the body of Christ and the way you treat each other. That if a person is unruly, that is, they refuse to live under the commands of Christ and they call themselves a Christian, I want you to reprove them, admonish them. And the word admonish means, it's a nuthateho, and it means to face somebody face to face and say, you need to come to grips with the fact that you're living in disobedience to Christ, who you say is Lord. That's, that's reproof. That's admonition. It's the stuff that none of us likes to do. But it's sometimes exactly what we need for somebody just to tell us the truth when we don't want to hear it. 
But parakletos, he says, I want you to confront those who are unruly, to reprove them, nuthatel. But those who are small-souled, those who are faint-hearted, is the way it's translated. Those who are faint-hearted, they're living their Christian life and they're really discouraged. They just don't think they can go on. I don't think I can make it. He says, I want you to encourage them. You see the difference? You get somebody who just says, I don't care what God says, I'm going to do what I want, then they need to be reproved. But when you have somebody, you go to them and you say, you know, your life is kind of in a mess. And you go, yeah, I, I know it, and I don't know what to do. They need encouragement. They're faint-hearted. They're, they're facing a trial they don't know how to go through. Maybe they're lonely. You know, maybe they feel cut off from everything that they really need. They need to be encouraged because God is a wonderful supply and he'll meet every need. And so they need encouragement. So he tells them uh, about this encourager, this encouragement that God brings to his life. And that's good news when you're suffering tribulation. God's presence. God's presence. So you're going through something and you don't know what's right around the corner. I don't know what's going to happen next. I watched this TV program. Judy and I watched this TV program the other night about this family. had five children, and all five of them had a genetic problem that would cause them to have heart failure. Three of them had already had heart transplants. The oldest girl, who was about 15, had had two transplants. The first one, her body rejected. She had to have a second one. And there's two other children that had pacemakers, but they told them probably they're going to have to have heart transplants. I was watching this, and I got, I was like, I told, there was another program came on right after it about another sad story. I said, I can't take anymore. It was just overwhelming to think about what they were facing. And yet, they were so courageous. I assume they were believers only because of the way they acted, not because of, you know, they told us anything about that. But it was, it was amazing. And sometimes in the trials of life, we just don't know if we can take anymore. I know that's true because I have people call me up and say, I don't think I can take any more of this. So what do we do? Well, we encourage them. You see, that's what Paul said, that God encouraged him in the midst of his trials. And so let me read verses 3 through 7 again. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulations. Arthlipsis are those horrible things that happen to us. Like this family. Nobody would say, well, they deserve it. You know, they, they let their kids eat too many M&Ms. Nah. No, they were going through an affliction, a tribulation. He says, he, he comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Now, that's weird, isn't it? Why does God comfort you? So you can comfort others. But that's not odd because every one of us have experienced that. I, not, maybe not every one of us, but many of us have experienced that. You go through times that seem impossible, God brings you through, and then he brings somebody in your life, and you find out they're going through the same thing you had gone through, and you can share with them. I want you to know that God will bring you through this, that he'll comfort you. Uh, somebody loses a spouse, or, or, or like this case with these children, the children that, that have this horrible... Uh, experience of having a heart fail. The youngest one that, that's happened to was eight years old, and, they, and he had a heart transplant. It's amazing, isn't it? What parents, what, what would they say? 
And so he says, God comforted us in all of our afflictions so that we could comfort others who go through the same kind of affliction, just as we were ourselves were comforted by God. In verse 5, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. What does he mean by that? We certainly don't experience the sufferings that Christ had on the cross, but we suffer as we follow Christ. And because we belong to him, just like he told Paul, why are you persecuting me? When believers go through suffering, it's identified as the sufferings of Christ. (laughs) You're that close to him. It's like families, you say, how are things going? It says, we're going through a horrible trial. Really, what's happening? Oh, my daughter, my niece, my brother, my sister. It's not them. They're not going through it. It's their, this person they love. And so when we go through troubles, he calls it the sufferings of Christ, the sufferings that we have because we follow Christ. So also, our comfort is abundant through Christ. Just like the sufferings are abundant, the comfort is abundant. God encourages his people as they go through difficult times. And he says, but if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, or if we are, conf- if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, so also you are sharers of our comfort. Now, we all know, everybody knows this. That's why we have recovery groups. And so people gather who are struggling in the same way in their lives, and they all get together. And they talk about what a battle it is to overcome this. But in the church, the difference is this. We have a comforter, a supernatural comforter. A parakletos, a spirit that is in us and with us and will be with us forever. So regardless of what we face, we have someone who is able to give us comfort, to give us encouragement as we face the, the trial. But then I want you to look at in, verse, in verses 8 through 11, God liberates us through our tribulation, liberates us in this way. He liberates us from something that's killing us. He liberates us from something that will kill a local church. And that is being a person who trusts themselves instead of trusting God. A person who lives in faith in their own ability rather than in faith in God. And listen to how he puts it, beginning in verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, our tribulation, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively. Asia would be like, uh, you know, Ephesus, for example, is in Asia. And so those things that he experienced in, in in Asia Minor, those things that he experienced, and there's a ton of things that he went through. He says, I, 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 I warred against beasts in Ephesus. In other words, it was hand-to-hand battle. He didn't mean really there were dogs after him. He meant that there were people trying to destroy him. And he says, I don't want you to be unaware of how it affected us. We were greatly despairing of even life. He goes on, he says, uh, that we were burdened beyond, excessively beyond our strength, and so we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. Have you ever had that where you thought, I can't live through this. I'm going to die. I talked to a guy just the other day who told me, not in our church, but somebody that called me wanted to talk to me. And he was telling me because what he's going through, he has actually thought about committing suicide. Think of that. The, the, the trouble could be so severe that they don't want to live anymore. 
And he says, indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Let me point out something here that's the main point that I want to get across to you, and that's found there in verse 8. That expression there, so that, is what's called a purpose clause. It's, a, it's introduced by a little word that always introduces a purpose in a context like this. And he says, why? And this, so this answers the question, why does God allow you to suffer? Why does God allow you to be afflicted, to go through tribulation? Why doesn't he make it smooth sailing all the time? Because I'm sure you're not guilty of this, but there are people who are guilty of this. They see a, a Christian going through really difficult times, and they assume he's done something wrong, and God's beating him up. I used to have this guy who would always ask me, what is God trying to tell me? Because things were really going bad for him. What is God trying to tell me? I said, oh, he's not trying to tell you anything. Believe me, he can communicate really clearly if you'll listen. But just because you have trouble doesn't mean that God's after you. Because he's told us clearly that he allows afflictions to come into our lives for a good purpose. And here is the primary purpose, that we would no longer be those who trust in ourselves, but those who trust in God who raises the dead. Misplaced faith is the most dangerous thing for the believer that there is. Misplaced faith. You go back and look in Isaiah chapter 7, the prophecy there of the virgin with child. And in that context, when, when, when Isaiah confronts the king, King Ahaz, and he's a, he's a king of misplaced faith, he's trusting his own ability to save his nation, and he doesn't want to trust God. And Isaiah is appealing to him, trust God. God has made you promises. You need to settle down and believe the promises of God. And he says, no, what he's already done that isn't told in that text, but it's told in another text, that he's already made arrangements to get a pagan nation to protect them. Instead of trusting in the God who has made him promises, he was trusting in his own ability to lead this nation into de- into, to defeat their enemies. And then Paul says this, who, this God who raises the dead, he says, he is the one who delivered us from a so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. You also joining and helping us through your prayers. So that, I, I love that. Paul actually believed that when people prayed for him, it was a part of God's means of delivering him. You also joining in helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. He was delivered from this. Now, what I want to drive home to you is that this, this principle is this, that this is God's purpose in trials. I would say, how many of you are going through a trial right now, but I don't want to do that because you might be tempted to... Um, withhold truth or supply a lie about your, your trouble. But get this, this is God's purpose, that we would not be those who trust in ourselves. That's the impact of that statement. It isn't just that you would no longer trust in yourself, that you wouldn't be a person. You wouldn't be this kind of person who trusts in themselves. Now, if we were to, if we were to have a little poll here, I'll bet you that half of us would have to stand against that wall with the people who say, yeah, I trust myself. That's what else can you do? You've got to trust in your own ability. I'm going to make it. I know how to make it. I've been through a lot of stuff. And over here would be the people who say, I can't trust myself. 
I'm facing stuff that I can't deliver myself from. And I've heard all the advice and I can't fix it. And so I've got to trust in God. I'm facing something that I can't fix and so I've got to trust in God. Guess what? That's why God allows you to go through tribulation. It's so that you would become a person who doesn't trust in themselves, but one who trusts in God who raises the dead. You get that? God who raises the dead, so you think, I'm, man, this is going to kill me. Well, God raises the dead. Yeah, he raises the dead. I don't know what's going to happen to, to Chip G. Uh, basically, he's gone home now, and, and he basically is just living day to day and seeing what's going to happen. But they give him no hope. The doctors have no hope for him. So I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen. But I know this, if he dies, he serves a God who raises the dead. And he's going to be raised up. But God could heal him. So don't stop praying for him. Because then if he heals him, you can say, I prayed for him. Along with many other believers, and God healed him. God does heal the sick. Right? Right. You don't have the gift of healing, but God heals the sick. He raises people up. And that's what Paul is saying. I thought I was going to die. I didn't think I could live through this. But the God who raises the dead brought me to the place where I could trust him and him only. Well, this amazes me because the apostle Paul was the most accomplished of the apostles. He was the most accomplished of this band of followers of Jesus. This guy was an incredible man. He had gone through so much, and he was so smart. He was so wise. And yet, he went through a trial that he thought he was going to die so that he would stop trusting in himself and trust in the God who raises the dead. I hope the Holy Spirit will drive home to your heart today the absolute insanity of trusting yourselves instead of trusting God. You say, well, I'm supposed to have self-confidence. Yeah, to a degree. You remember when uh, Jesus came walking on the water and Peter said, Lord, bid me come. He says, okay, come. And so Peter gets out of the boat and he took a step. And then he stopped trusting Christ. He started, he looked down and think, wow, look at me, I'm walking on water. And what happened? He sunk. And so God wants to teach us how to live our lives in trusting him. Now, trusting him will be manifested in our obedience to him. If I could have you, I'm not going to do this, but if I were to have you write down on a piece of paper, what is probably the, the, the one command of God and the command of Christ that I just don't think I could possibly do? I don't want to do that. That would really mess my life up if I started obeying that. What would it be? <laughs> Because you're trusting yourself. See, when you're trusting God, you actually have faith that what he's commanded you to do, he will empower you to do. Does he want you to bear witness to somebody? And you think, uh, this is a real common thing, do you? Take a piece of paper and write down every name you can think of in your circle of friends that needs Christ. And just write their names down so you can start praying for them. And then take the, heart, the one that you think would be the most difficult to bear witness to, and make him the first one you talk to, or her the first one you talk to. <laughs> because if you trust yourself, if you're trusting the fact that you think you're pretty competent in convincing people of things, 
I think I could pull this off. I think I could talk people into becoming followers of Jesus. No, you can't. But God can. And so if you're trusting him and you bear witness, then God will manifest his power in your life. Um, This whole thing of uh, us coming to the end of ourselves us going through things that bring us to the end of ourselves so that we can't, I can't trust myself in this situation because I just don't know what to do. And I have to turn to him. I have to trust him. This is the greatest shift that could ever take place in your life. In chapter two, when Paul is assailed by anguish of spirit, it's, it's God who always, he says, it's God who always leads me in triumph in Christ. In other words, he came to the end of himself. In chapter 4, he talks about, he realizes that he's experiencing this divine, glorious treasure in a clay vessel, that he's got so many faults, and he's so broken. But he says all of that so that the glory would be his and not mine. And on and on and on throughout this whole book. I want to, I want to, Warren Wisby has, he says, when God puts his children into the furnace, he keeps his hand on the thermostat and his eye on the thermometer. Some of you don't know the difference between the thermostat and the thermometer, but God knows exactly what you're going through, and he's the one who's in control. He's in control. And so he wants you to trust him. I want to give you my favorite passages to take people to when they're suffering tribulation, when they're going through a hard time, and they're stumbled by it. Now, it's... There's nothing wrong with going through tribulation. It's just a part of God's design. But sometimes believers are stumbled by it. How could God allow this? How could God allow this? Don't ever answer that question. Because you'd be foolish. You'll never give a satisfying answer. But if you understand that the purpose of trials is to bring you to the place where you give up hope in yourself as being your God and you begin to trust in the true and living God, that's a good outcome of a tribulation and a trial. So I like to take people to these passages. Let me just show you. In Romans chapter 5, he says, not only this, but we exult as we celebrate our tribulations. That is, that's, what we, that's one of the most wonderful things about being a Christian. It's the, tribulation that God loves, the tribulations that God leads us through. Why? Because we know that tribulation brings about perseverance. That is the ability to serve God and love God when the pressure's on us. And he says, and perseverance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. And then he says, and this hope, the hope that comes as a result of me going through these things and God being faithful to me, that hope will never disappoint you. And this is the reason. Because God, the love of God, has been poured out in your heart by the Holy Spirit. Now, what he means by that, let me just explain this real quickly. What he means by that is when you got saved, this is one of the ministries of the Spirit. He gushed forth the love of God into your heart. When you heard the gospel, for example, for the first time, all of a sudden, you knew, even though you couldn't even measure it, you knew that God loved you. And he says, this is what happened to us when we first believed the gospel, that the Spirit gushed forth the love of the Father in our hearts. And he says, when you go through a trial and God delivers you, and your, your characters change, and you begin to have hope, you remember, you see the evidence of God's love for you. And then the second, the second passage, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, he talks about how your trials are like the refining of gold. 
He says, consider it nothing but joy or all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And the word various is the word that's used of um, Joseph's many colored coat. Uh, these trials, these uh, trials come in all kinds of forms. Every kind of form you can think of. No matter how well you plan your life and uh, you, you know, you have, you have these plans, you're going to avoid all the bad stuff that's going on in the world. You get a bigger gun, stronger locks, on and on and on. Uh, the fact is the trials come in such variegated ways that you could never plan for them. And so he says, when you encounter various trials, count it joy. Why? Because here's why. Because we know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Here's that word again. Perseverance, endurance. The ability to continue believing God and trusting God when things are going so bad. And he says, and let endurance have its perfect result. You've got to go all the way through. Let it come to its culmination. Let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You can grow and be a changed person. The last one is, is 1 Peter 1. The reason I mention this to you, here's what I would do. I would mark in your Bible these three passages. I would put in the flyleaf of the Bible, trials. And then put down these three passages, write them down. So the next time that somebody tells you, shares with you, if you never respond to a believer who's telling you, man, I'm really having a tough time. I'm really going through a trial. If you don't say, well, let's talk and take them to the the word of God, you have failed them. Because God's called you to do that. He's equipped you to do that. He's given you his word so that you can do that. And the final passage is 1 Peter 1. He says, in this, that is in this salvation we have received, we greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if it's necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. If it's necessary. God doesn't afflict you with trials unless it's necessary in his good purpose and plan for you. But he says, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith, the word proof there means the refined part of your faith, like gold. You take a piece of, of ore that has a rock that has a bunch of gold ore in it, and they, what they would do, the way they would do this, they would put it over heat. And so the gold would melt, and they'd be able to separate the pure gold from all the other stuff. He said, that's how trials are. Yeah, you have faith, but God wants to refine your faith. And so he lets you go through trials. It's just like heat. And so what happens is your faith is refined. And notice what he says about it. He says, uh, and... So that the proof of your faith, the proof part of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know we're all going to worship when we stand in God's presence? We're going to worship like we've never worshiped before. It's going to be glorious. And he says, when we stand before him, John in his epistle says, I want to live in such a way that I won't shrink back at his coming. What if... What if all of a sudden you realize Christ is coming? You know, what if there was some kind of manifestation of light or something, and all of a sudden you realize, oh boy, I'm in trouble. Christ is coming. And he says, John says, I want to live in such a way that I don't shrink back from him at his coming. I want to live in light of the coming of Christ. And through you have not, and, and he says, and though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you will greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory as you are obtaining this, the outcome of your faith, the salvation, salvation of your souls. I just wanted to give that to you, those passages, 
By the way, on the website, if you go on the website, you can download a copy of this in a PDF file just so that you can get those verses. I would write those verses in the flyleaf of your Bible and have them at hand because somebody you know right now, somebody who's close to you is going through a trial. And guess what? You have a responsibility to encourage them. Be used of the Holy Spirit, the encourager, to encourage them. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much that you love us this much that you would allow us to go through tribulations in order to bring us to this great transformation of becoming people who do not trust in themselves but in the God who raises the dead. I don't know how to live any other way. How could we possibly live in this world, in this time, in our circumstances without living by faith in the God who raises the dead? Please cause that message to penetrate our hearts, we pray. And we will give you thanks for it. In Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.